0: One of the purposes of God's law was to show us again what sinners we were. It was never given to save us. It was given to reveal us. It was given to expose us. It was not given to redeem us, but to show us our need for a redeemer. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie. Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study in Romans and are working our way through the deep theological truths found in chapter 5. In our message entitled, Super Abounding Grace, we have looked at the amazing love shown by Jesus Christ in covering the sins of the world through His sacrifice on the cross. God's grace we have seen is ever-increasing, able to extend beyond the ever-increasing sin first introduced by Adam. The acts of Adam and of Jesus we have learned affect all, and as we pick up, Pastor Brogy notes that mankind can spiritually either be in Christ or apart from Christ.
0: Very often I'll ask people on a scale of 0 to 100, 0 I have no idea, 100 I have no doubt, how certain are you that you go to heaven? And they'll say, oh, 25 or 50 or 62% or 28%. I always wonder how they come up with some of those numbers. And, and, uh, but listen, it's either zero or 100. You're either in Christ, identified in His righteousness, or you're outside of Christ, identified in Adam's unrighteousness. And one of these days, we're all going to leave this world, and the world we're going to is determined by which person we've been identified with. If you're an Adam, you will spend an eternity away from God in a place called hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna. If you are in Christ, then to be absent from the body will be to be present with the Lord. I was trying to help a young lady understand this this week, and her need to receive Christ, and she said, well, I don't want to make a decision. I said, well, listen, when you say you don't want to make a decision, you've made a decision. I said, if you go out here on Highway 280 and you're standing in the middle of the road and there's a tractor trailer bearing down and you choose not to get out of the way, you've made your decision. And there are consequences with that decision. Well, people say, well, I can't, I can't decide what I want to do or I won't make this decision. You've made your decision. Listen, you're already out in Highway 280. The tr- cement truck's coming right at you and it can't stop. Jesus said, you are on the broadway. He didn't say, well, don't get on the broadway. In Matthew 7, he said, we're on the broadway that leads to destruction. He's inviting us to leave the broadway and to get on the narrow road that leads to life. And the only way to be transferred out of one kingdom into another is through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, so there's a comparison Of how one act affects all. There's a comparison of how one act affects all. Finally, I want you to see the comparison of how one act rules all. This raises a question that brings us to verse 20. Notice what he says. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, Paul doesn't so much ask a question here as he anticipates the question. A question especially that Jewish people would ask, listen, if righteousness is received, as you just said in verse 17, if it's a gift that is received and not a reward that is earned, if God gives us this righteousness as a gift, then what on earth is the function of the law? Things like the Ten Commandments. That's the thought. And people ask the same kinds of questions today. They say, if you are saved by grace and not by works, as you evangelical born-again say, then what's the function of the Ten Commandments? Are you telling me that my trying to keep the Ten Commandments will not save me? Why did God give them? Well, he's going to give us a number of reasons before we're done with Romans. But initially, he wants us to see here in verse 20, the law came in. So that the transgression would increase. Paul is saying instead of preventing sin, it brought just the opposite. It increased unrighteousness. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Hold your finger here and turn back a few pages, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Uh, I want you to see something. I just want to remind you of something that we've already studied because Paul brings up this issue several different times in the epistle to the Romans. He taught us that some of us know God's laws because God wrote it on tablets of stone or in pieces of parchment. And then there are other people who have never seen the tablets of the Ten Commandments. They never saw the first scroll or parchment of the law, but they also knew the law. How so? Well, if you remember here in Romans 2.14, and he's dealing here with Gentiles, and the word Gentile in the Bible can be used in a couple of different ways, sometimes in deference to a a Jew, a non-Jew being a Gentile, that's most of us here today, or as a synonym for a pagan, because most Gentiles were pagans in Jesus' day. So when he said, don't pray like the Gentiles, he's saying, don't pray like a pagan. Well, Paul here is describing the pagan, and he says in 2:14 for when gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law a law to themselves Now two corresponding facts are given to us about gentiles or pagans the first is they do not have the law and note he says that twice here in verse 14 externally, they did not possess the Scriptures. They did not hold into their hands the scrolls. God entrusted the scrolls, the parchments, to the Jewish people. Now, Gentiles could go and could hear. They could become God-fearers. They could become proselytes or Gentiles who converted to Judaism. But they weren't given the law. The oracles of God, Paul says, were given to the Jewish people. But secondly, while they did not possess the Old Testament law, internally they did. How so? He says they are a law to themselves. Now pay attention. A Gentile, a pagan, who does not have a Bible, who does not have the Scriptures, instinctively does the things of the Scriptures. How so? In that they are a law to themselves. Not in the sense that they formulate and create and make their own laws. But within their heart, God wrote his law. And so I told you before of one of my missionary friends in Papua New Guinea. And he we went there to the Arumba people. Literally, they've got spears. They're in loincloths. And yet these people thought it was wrong to steal from one another. They thought it was wrong to commit adultery. They thought it was wrong to murder. And in that community of 28,000 people, there were consequences. How was that possible? These not having the law because they're a law to themselves. He further explains, verse 15, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. And so while they do not have a Bible in their hands, they have the requirements of the law in their hearts because God wrote it there. And that's why man's law, if it's a good law, is based on what the theologians of centuries past called natural law. That is that, and by natural law, they meant that law that God has given and written into the hearts of all men. And so we have in the executive branch, we have in our Congress, everyone from our president to our vice president to scores of uh, people in the House and in the Senate of every party who are saying that homosexuality is okay. That goes against what God has said. And when you hear a politician or a preacher say that, those are people who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're going against what God has clearly said in nature. Even nature itself, the Bible tells us, that this is a wrong kind of thing. How do, how do we know that? Because God wrote the law into our hearts, and God help a nation. God, help a nation where the people as a whole begin to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and embrace things that God calls evil and an abomination and to call such things right. God, help a nation because they are in a fast tail down, spin downward and they are going to come under the judgment of God Almighty. And so here he is, he says, these Gentiles, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience alternately either accusing or defending them. Now, it is true that a man's conscience can become damaged. It can become seared. It can become calloused as with a, uh, like a callous on my hand, where it becomes unresponsive, where a man can call evil good and good evil. And that's what, that's what's happening Uh, These Christians who who say homosexuality say is wrong, we're bigots. We're narrow-minded. We just have a warped view. No, we're just saying what God plainly says, what our conscience tells us, and what the written word of God says. Now, go back here to Romans 5 in verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, there's two verses that you want to have written next to verse 20. One is Romans 3.20, and the other is Romans 7.7. Those would be good verses to study this week. Let me just read to you Romans 3.20. He says, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. If this morning you're trying to get a good status with God by the works of the law, by the things you do, it's not going to happen. By the works of the law. Shall no flesh, no person, be declared righteous, saved, forgiven in his sight. Then again, why was it given? Paul tells us, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. One of the purposes of God's law was to show us again what sinners we were. It was never given to save us. It was given to reveal us. It was given to expose us. It was not given to redeem us, but to show us our need for a Redeemer, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, you might want to turn over a page or so in your Bibles to Romans 7 and verse 7. He will bring this up again. And again, these are not the sole purposes of the law. This is one purpose. The law is good, Paul will say, and God's going to use it in the life of the believer. But in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin. May it never be. God forbid the thought. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about covening if the law had said, you shall not covet. You see, whether God's law is written on a piece of paper or written in your heart, it is there. And when you do what God says not to do in his law, then your conscience defends you or it accuses you. When you do what's wrong, it accuses you. When you do what's right, it defends you. It reveals you. When God said you shall not steal and you went out and stole something, the law convicted you. When the law said you shall not covet or you shall not commit adultery, when you violated that, the law convicted you. It made you acutely aware of a problem. To the church of Galatia, Paul said it in these words. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. I like the old King James. It says, wherefore the law has, was our schoolmaster to bring us on to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so as Luther said, the function of the law is not to justify, but to terrify. It's like a mirror. You looked in a mirror this morning and you saw dirt on your face. You didn't take the mirror and rub it on the dirt. It would only smear it. No, it showed the need, and you went to the basin and you washed. When you look into God's holy law, you see not a dirty face, but a dirty soul, and it becomes a schoolmaster, a tutor, to lead you to the blood of Calvary that you might be cleaned. And so that's really the thought here in Romans 5 and verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would actually increase. Now, let me explain with an illustration. When we were planning a new church in Aiken, usually once, twice, occasionally three times a month, I would drive to Aiken. And when I would go up there, at first, I wasn't sure the best way to go because everyone who was from Aiken had a different way. There's five different ways minimum to get to Aiken. And before I learned all the shortcuts and all the back roads, I used to go through this little town called New Ellington on Route 19. Now, I remember the first time driving there, and I thought maybe I'd made a wrong turn. I go into a convenience store. They said, no, right down this road, but watch it. This is a speed trap. And it goes from 55 to 45 to 35. And it goes, but all the time it's five lanes, and all the time it's just as thickly settled. And so they said, watch it, watch it watch it. It's one of the more famous speed traps in South Carolina. So when I saw that thing change from 55 to 45 to 35, what did I think? Oh, I'm among those who are going to enjoy the lower speed limit and just rejoice in this slow speed limit on this five-lane road. Well, not exactly, but uh, I remember coming home one night And I would go there, I'd leave here usually, I'd eat lunch, I'd uh, leave at 3 o'clock, I'd go there, I'd have three or four counseling appointments, I'd preach, I'd do another two or three, and it was a late night, I'm leaving Aiken at 10 o'clock, and I'm whooped, because I arrived here like I do most Sunday mornings between 6 and 6.30. And I thought, I wonder if I can just do five over, you know, just, I know it says 45, but maybe I, I wanted to really get home. Now, uh, I won't say all that I've done, but I I know that um, some of you can identify. Some of you see a state policeman, and all of a sudden, you just kind of tap that brake, don't you? I I know I'm speaking to a multitude of sinners this morning. (laughs) I'm not condoning breaking the speed limit. Please understand. Don't write me any letters. What I want you to see is that the more laws there are, the more possibility of breaking those laws, and that's what Paul is saying. The more laws there are, the more you can break those laws. Why? Because by nature we're an atom and we have a proclivity towards doing the wrong thing. You take a child, you put 10 pieces of candy on the table. They're all identical pieces, and you set one over here separate. Which one does that little child want? He wants the one that you said he can't have. He can have any one of the nine, but not this one. He'll negotiate for that one. Why? Because that's the way it is. Where sin, in, where the law is, sin abounds. And so the opposite is true. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Look at that. What a beautiful thing. He says the law piles up sin. That's the picture here. But then he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, the NIV says. Another translation says, where sin abounded, grace abounded. Another translation says, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied. But please notice how the NAS puts it. It says, where sin increased, grace abounded. It doesn't use the same word twice. It uses two different words. And precisely so. Because there are two entirely different Greek words in the original text. The Net Bible renders it, but where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. Now the first word that is translated here in the New American Standard, increased, means a numerical increase. Sin upon sin, sin upon another. Again, how many sins did it require for Adam to be cast out of the Garden of Eden? That's right, only one, just one in paradise was lost. So if you have trouble grasping the idea that you're identified in Adam's sin, you've got to stand on your own two feet and ask yourself if you've just sinned once. But here's the point that I don't want you to miss. According to this verse, we're not guilty of just one sin, but a multitude of sin. Where sin increased, numerical increase, one sin upon the other. But where sin increased, and then there's a second word, totally different Greek word, grace abounded all the more. And the word means to overabound. But then when you really want to underscore and highlight the word, you put the word hyper in front of it. Hooper. Hooper abounded. Grace super abounded where sin increased. Now, some of you didn't know that the word hyper was in the Bible. Some of you got a hyperactive kid. They're stuck in fifth gear all day until they drop asleep on the bed at night. But in Scripture, there's this word hyperabounded where sin increased. Grace Hyperabounded grace, superabounded. It's a beautiful picture. It speaks of the never ending, superabounding grace of God Almighty. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, notice verse 21 so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. It's a magnificent chapter of contrasts and comparisons. Adam's sin brought the rule of death. Sin reigned, the text says, in death. It brought the rule of death. Christ's obedience brought the rule of eternal life. Grace would reign, he says here, through righteousness. Adam partook of a tree and he began to die. The Lord Jesus hung on a tree so that we could live. Adam was a thief and he's thrown out of paradise. Christ is a servant so we can get back into paradise. Adam is driven by greed. Christ is driven by grace. It's a beautiful comparison and contrast. Now, how can we apply all of this this morning? Let me make at least three obvious lessons from the text. Number one, everyone listening to me this morning is either in Christ or in Adam. You're either in Adam or in Christ. There's no in-between. You're either on your way to heaven if Jesus comes back today, or you die, or you're on your way to hell, there's no in-between. You're either saved or lost. There's absolutely no middle ground in Scripture. Secondly, I learned from this text that no one's sin is so deep, no one's sin is so deep into Adam's life that he cannot be reached by the grace of God. You know, I will meet Christians on occasion who will say to me, oh, he's so bad, he'll never repent. Or they'll say, oh, pastor... Good luck. I don't need luck, but good luck, pastor. I don't see how he'll ever become a Christian. If you just knew the home he was brought in, he's got so many strikes against him ever before he starts. And God would say, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. Years ago, I was preaching at the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, and they have an interesting ministry. They bring in about a thousand men off this street every night, homeless men, and they give them a uh, warm bed to sleep in. They give them a shower that they have to take. They take their clothes. They put them in a bag and in this high oven, and it kills all the germs and bacteria, and they give them a hot meal. But to come in, there are some stipulations, You have to listen to the preaching. That's where they start. After the preaching, you go through the rest of the hoops. And so I was there, and the director was giving me a tour, and I said, you know, I understand there's a lot of famous people who've been converted through your mission. I said, who's the one who sticks out most in your mind? He said, hands down, Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter was a glassy-eyed drunk who lived a wicked life, who on one day was supposed to take the family money and buy his daughter medicine, but instead he bought alcohol and in the process his daughter died. And even there in the funeral home, he stole the shoes off of his daughter's body and sold them so he could get another glass of wine. It was sin stacking up, sin increasing. This man decades ago as he was walking the streets of Chicago heard a a song that the men were singing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Saved a Wretch Like Me. And it grabbed his attention and he goes into the Pacific Garden Mission. And he hears the gospel preached and he comes down and he says, I am that wretch that you have been singing about. And that night, he was converted to Jesus Christ and God forever changed his life. How is it that that song could grab his attention because it was written by a man who was even more wicked than Mel Trotter. John Newton, who was raised initially by a godly mother who died at the age of six. His father soon abandoned him. He was on the streets of London living like an animal. He found his dad at 11. His dad brought him onto a ship where he spent the next several years. And as he grew and matured, he lived such an immoral, wicked life that even his own father disowned him. And on one occasion during a violent storm, drunk on rum, he fell overboard and the captain of the ship took a harpoon and hooked him and carried him in, a wound, a deep wound that you could put your fist in that he lived with the rest of his life. And they threw him down into the hull of the ship, bleeding, chained, and badly wounded. And there in the hull of the ship at the bottom of life, He remembered as a five- and six-year-old boy his mother speaking to him about Jesus Christ. And the Scripture began to flood his mind. And he gave his life to Jesus. Became a great pastor, leader, and spokesperson to free the slaves legally because he was involved in the slave trade. And later he would write, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was once lost, but now I'm found was blind but now i see twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour i first believed through many dangers toils and snares i have already come twas grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will bring me home he understood something of the grace of god And unless you understand something of the grace of God, you may not be a Mel Trotter or a John Newton, but your righteousness is as filthy rags. And unless you exchange the righteousness of Adam with the righteousness of Christ, then you will leave this world as a condemned sinner, something that God does not desire. But if you, by a simple transaction of faith, will humbly bow and receive Jesus as Lord, God will give you the righteousness of Christ and forgive you forever. Finally, there's no possible way to change the damage but by that grace. When we started this section, this section of Scripture some four weeks ago, I gave you a rhyme that the Puritans wrote called Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And we saw that it's rather a silly rhyme today, but it wasn't to the Puritans. As over a hundred years ago, someone illustrated Humpty Dumpty as an egg. There's no mention of an egg anywhere. It's a little rhyme that they taught their children to teach them a spiritual truth. That man has fallen from the wall. And there's nothing that man can do to put himself together. That it takes the grace of Almighty God So some modern writer wanting to capture the original truth wrote, Jesus Christ came to our wall. Jesus Christ died for our fall. So regardless of death and in spite of our sin, through grace, he can put us together again. Do you know absolutely for sure that you are identified in Jesus Christ? You can know salvation is a gift to be received by faith. And God makes you a promise that if you will call upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. But you must admit there is a problem that you by nature, like me by nature, are a rebel. That you want to do your own thing. That like Adam, and with Adam, you said, not your will, God, but my will be done. And you must come and be willing to humble yourself and to receive God's will through Jesus Christ and the salvation that He can give. Why don't you today, because today the Scripture says is the day of salvation, why don't you believe what God said and say, Lord Jesus, save me?
1: For a copy of today's study from Romans 5, verses 17 to 20, entitled, God's Superabounding Grace why not download our Search the Scriptures app for Android and iOS devices. They are free and available through your respective app stores. Of course, you can always listen online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, feel free to call 877-787-7478 and request program ROM26, God's Super Abounding Grace. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. We don't charge for any of our online resources, but we do pay radio stations around the country, and we have storage and support fees associated with our worldwide presence on the web. Won't you consider becoming a Search the Scriptures Foundation partner? Foundation partners come alongside Search the Scriptures on a regular basis— and help sustain this ministry with a gift of at least $25 a month. If you'd like more information on being a foundation partner or on making a one-time gift, call us at 877-787-7478 or check out our STS app and our web presence at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we move into Romans 6 and look at whether we as believers now have a license to sin. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.